That's Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replies. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, Simon who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the provenance of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He, ha he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard him speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days.
Thank you very much, Dan. Do please uh, keep that open or switched on in front of you, that passage, if you've got it. And I'm just going to pray for us as we look at this bit of the Bible together. Heavenly Father, we uh, think of that hymn we sang at the start of the service, praying for your Holy Spirit to cause your word to come alive in us. And we do pray that he will be at work in us, in our church congregation, in our lives today. Please will your word come alive to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, I was talking to a friend of mine a little while ago who is a vicar, a minister of a much more sort of traditional church than ours in the middle of the English countryside. And they did a little sort of survey of the village that their church was in to discover what was stopping people coming to church. And one of the things that came out of their survey was there's so much like formal stuff that we don't understand um, and that's what's stopping people coming to church. So he was like, okay guys, we're going to try and remove some of the formality from church to help people engage with us more. And one of the things their church had were these gold, a bit like this, gold cross and candlesticks that always stood at the front. And he was like, first step, I'm just going to take those down in some services. Well, he was like, I'd go in on Saturday to get the church ready, the cross and the candlesticks would be in the corner, and then I'd arrive on Sunday morning and they'd miraculously have reappeared on the table. He said, I was beginning to think, you know, there were gremlins who were very pro the crucifix. Uh, what was going on? So he said, eventually, one, sat- one Saturday, I just stayed a little bit later than usual, and I discovered a little old lady who'd been in the church for years, sneaking in in her slippers to put the cross and the candlesticks back on the table. And the thing that he said to me about that is that made him realise is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what he's saying there is, the way we are used to doing things, our culture, will always get in the way of what we're aiming to do. Even if we all decide it's the right thing to do, Our culture, the way we do things, will get in the way. Well, it's all very well thinking about that for other churches with tables and crosses and stuff like that. Something that I see example of that in our church at work is something like this can happen. Someone becomes a Christian or they rediscover their faith uh, after having lived in a way that wasn't very Christian for a long time. So all of their friends and connections and everything they have in their life are people who aren't Christians. Now, the Bible has a strategy for that. The Holy Spirit has a strategy. It's this, that you keep those close relationships, but you live in those relationships with a transformed life. And yes, some of those people who weren't Christians will ridicule you and dismiss you, but your response to that will point those people you're connected to to Jesus. That is the strategy, you know, high-potency Christians in close contact with people who aren't Christians. But here's what happens, because the culture of church is so strong. We begin to find over time that we are more comfortable with people who are more like us. We become disapproving of those strange people we used to be like. It's just easier to hang out with Christians, to live with Christians, to chat Christian stuff. It's the discomfort of jumping from where I feel at home to jumping to where I'm not. And so within a couple of years, many people uh, end up with no friends left who aren't Christians because they're very cosy in Christian culture. Now, the problem with that is that if you go out into the world today and say, what do you think of the church? People will generally like either say, why would I think anything about the church? It's nothing to do with me. Or though, if they do have an opinion, it tends to be, well, the church is just like a bunch of finger-wagging, self-righteous people who think they're better than all of us. And if what I've just said is true, that we do withdraw from people who aren't Christians so we can hang out with Christians, they're right. We are hiding because we think, oh, the way that you treat me makes me feel uncomfortable. Christian culture is eating the Holy Spirit's strategy for breakfast. Well, here in the earliest story of the church, uh, the story in Acts, which is what Jesus continued to do by pouring out his Holy Spirit into the lives of people who knew him, the Holy Spirit does all sorts of things 
But it's interesting, he doesn't do that thing which we might expect. He doesn't say, you're all holy now, so withdraw into a safe place and make sure the world doesn't pollute you. That does quite the opposite. He does quite the opposite. He fills people up and that filling forces them out beyond boundaries they never would have crossed before. These first Jewish Christians had a very strong culture of purity. And this is the story, this book, of how the Holy Spirit rearranges that to push them out and enter this world that they would have thought was unclean. They weren't in a world anymore that was safe, formed by knowing God, where other people are distant and strange. Here is the strategy that Jesus has in Acts for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. It's to not let our culture eat his strategy is our job. Not to let what makes us comfortable swallow up what he wants to do by filling us up and sending us out. That's what this story about Peter is all about. And we're going to see four things, four quotes from this story that really help us make sense of it. Here's the first one that Peter says, I am only a man myself, in verse 26. I was reading an article recently about how apparently to uh, combat climate change, we're all going to have to find different sources of protein, because apparently cows cause climate change. A scientist can tell you about that. Uh, Apparently that's true. We might need to eat meat that is artificially produced or get protein from other places. And apparently 16% of British people are willing to try insects as a sort of protein, which they do in many countries. There's a big plate of edible insects. Now, you may not want to do that, but if you do want to do it, Peter discovers God's fine with that. Peter, the lead apostle of the church, had always observed Old Testament food laws, but he had this dream three times to say, all the animals, all the reptiles, birds, insects, they're all fine to eat. Sometimes you see those documentaries on TV about people who like scrape up and eat roadkill off the road, badgers and squashed pheasants and stuff. We might think it's weird. We'd be right. (laughs) But God doesn't have a problem with it. Not in terms of purity, anyway. And here's Peter, who's never crossed that barrier in terms of eating or having eaten with a non-Jewish person. And he says, when he gets to Cornelius, this non-Jewish person's house, it's made me realise no people are unclean because of where they're from or what they're like. I don't have to think of people that way. Uh, This is an aside, and it is just an aside. It's one of the reasons why it's strange to me that Christians have such a reputation for being against immigration because they want to protect, quote-unquote, British culture because the Bible teaches no person is unclean because of their nationality or culture. There are no particularly unclean cultures, and perhaps we should view it as a chance to uh, reach across cultures, a Holy Spirit-inspired opportunity rather than a threat. Anyway, aside from the picture of all the animals being like all people are clean, food itself was a big barrier. As you'll know, if you have an intolerance to any food uh, stuff, it can make receiving hospitality quite strange. You know, someone plonks down a lovely cake they've spent all afternoon baking and then you're like, "Mm, I'm actually dairy intolerant or whatever. It creates barriers. It limits relationship if you can't eat the things that people around you eat. But God is saying that limit to relationship with people you think is unclean is removed. While Jewish food laws meant a separate social life, that time is over. And Peter understands that barrier is broken. Well, anyway, when Peter gets to Cornelius, a really interesting thing happens. Cornelius falls down to worship him because he's had this dream to say, send for Peter. He must think Peter is an angel or something. And Peter says these words, stand up, I am only a man myself. Now there's so much I could say about that. There is a branch of the church that says their leader descends directly from Peter. And that's why people have to go and kneel before that person and kiss his ring. Strange, Peter just wouldn't have had that at all, even if that was true. He's like, please don't do that. I'm only a person. 
But the interesting thing for us from this story, I think, is this, that crossing the barrier with the gospel does not mean first set myself up as a really brilliant, holy person that you can respect, and then they'll think, wow, you're a really great person. Peter won't have that at all. He's like, I'm just a person like you. We sometimes think, don't we, we have to sort of muster up that Christians look really great before we talk to anybody who's different than us so they can sort of bask in our greatness. And Peter just won't have any of that. He's like, no, the reason I'm here is not because I'm different to you. It's because I'm like you. Jesus is different to you. (laughs) We'll get to that. But me, I'm just a person like you. Sometimes I think, we think, the Holy Spirit will make us glow in some sort of special way that makes people wander up to us and be like, wow, you're amazing, what's different about you? I want to know everything about what you believe. And then we think like, oh, it's never happened. It mustn't, the strategy isn't working. But in fact, the way the Spirit works is by bringing us alongside people who are just like us. So we can talk to them, even if their culture feels very different. Let me give you an example of this. It's a bit like the thing I said at the start. I remember talking to someone who was then in our church. They're not now, and they haven't been for many years. So, uh, But they were talking about their workplace, and they were saying this quite proudly. They were saying, in my workplace, everybody knows I get my work done, and I go home, and I don't go to the staff Christmas party. I don't join in with all the banter around the desks. I don't do any of that. People know I'm a serious Christian. I get my work done, but other things matter to me apart from what matters to them. And I think they thought, if I stand aloof in a part like that, everyone will somehow think, wow, I want to be a Christian. Peter's view is the opposite. He's like, I don't really want you thinking, wow, you're really great. I want to start by like, I'm just a person like you. That is all there is to say about me. Really what's going on there is that we're doing the thing that Peter's being taught not to do. We're letting the cultural sense of how comfortable we feel with people's culture, whether it's the workplace culture or their nationality, whatever it is, we're letting that dictate whether we have connection with people. Rather than saying, we're all human beings, so I am connected to you. We're allowing that bad human culture of like, you only talk to people like you. We're allowing that to eat up the Holy Spirit strategy, which is, you're beside people who are just like you. You don't need to become something else except a normal, weak human being in order to serve God. And we must not let cultural gaps stop us sharing our humanity. That's the first step. As you do change, as you grow as a Christian, I do get that connecting with people who aren't Christians feels more and more like crossing a cultural divide. But the Holy Spirit is in that effort to cross the barrier, not in the effort to hide from the barrier. That's the first thing we see. Here's the next one. Oh, we're normal people. God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. This is a very confusing bit of this story because Peter seems to say to this man, Cornelius, God knew about the good things that you did before you even were a Christian. And that's confusing to me because I've always been taught that everyone has sinned and all our attempts to do good without Jesus are filthy rags. So why would God be noticing this non-Christian's good works and send them someone to tell them about Jesus? Well, all have sinned. Peter doesn't contradict that. You'll see at the end of his little sermon that he gives, he says to everybody there, you all need to receive forgiveness from Jesus. So he's not backing off that. If you're a good person here today, maybe you're a very moral person, you do the right thing in the world, let's be really clear, you do still need Jesus to forgive your sins. No good work you do will change that. And if you find that hard to swallow, 
That's probably because you're not as good as you think you are. You're actually a very self-righteous person doing good things to show that you're good. People who are really genuinely good tend to be humble and don't mind being told they need forgiveness. But I think what we're learning about the world here is that when you, do, when you meet people who do good things, who they have a quest for spiritual real righteousness, they want justice and peace and humility, we should assume God's already up to something there. I was hearing uh, someone recently talking about how uh, Christianity, even though most people in Britain now have abandoned it, it's just the culture of the air we breathe. Let's think about the news this week. We're all highly affronted, aren't we, that our leaders have been behaving in a way they told us not to behave. Everyone very cross about that. You know, if you've missed that, you must have had your head under a rock or something. But do you realise that pre-Christianity, say a Roman emperor, if you'd gone up to Julius Caesar and said, you're the leader and you're setting rules for everybody else that you don't have to follow yourself, Julius Caesar would have said, uh, yeah, that's like what being in charge is. <laughs> that's ruling over people. The plebs do what I say. This idea that we're all equal, no matter our status, is a, well, a Judeo-Christian invention. And so where we find in the world people really passionate about those ideas, we should think already at work somehow there. Now, of course, there have been Christians who have not been for those things, equality and justice and all of those things. But Christians who were against those things were always hypocrites. They're always going against Jesus. And what we're seeing here, I think, is if you meet someone who is giving their life to help the poor, someone who prays like Cornelius, who cares deeply about equality, you should assume and think, you know, God is already doing something in this situation. You should not assume that they don't need forgiveness. That would be wrong. But God is already up to something here. I should connect people over our shared concerns. They're living under a sort of Christian umbrella. Even if culturally they are very, very different to me. Now listen, crossing those cultural barriers will be hard. I was thinking about who does share those type of qualities with me and the people who live around where I am. And they tend to be people like uh, very socialist politicians, uh, anti-racism protesters, feminist campaigners, not people who are like knocking at my door wanting to be friends with me, you know, the pastor. But the Holy Spirit is calling me to cross those cultural barriers because the fact those people care about those things is a sign God's up to something there. One of the things in Christchurch any length of time you might have noticed is that we don't have loads and loads of services that the churches run. We don't run a church ministry uh, to refugees. We don't run a church, I think, over the pandemic, but hopefully we'll get back. It would be better to go and join in with that type of thing with people who aren't Christians who are already doing it. It would be better because often those people have more expertise than us with what they're doing. But better than that, if you really care about homelessness and you go and find people who aren't thing there, that they're living out a Christian ethic. And often when you go into those circles, never met a credible Christian before who will tell them that they need forgiveness from Jesus now there's a whole separate issue there I'm not getting into but sometimes the church does need to respond to specific needs uh, talk about that another day in my cynical moments I think it's just easier for everybody to sit back and say you know why doesn't the church do this rather than saying Oh, there's people doing this I could join in with. And also, there will be some shared view of the world that means I can talk to them about things that really matter to me. So Peter here, God here, is teaching us, really, if we're Christians, a bit of humility. Stop thinking you're the only place that God is working. Assume 
God is already at work in the amazing things that people do who aren't Christians. And so join in, do good alongside, tell people God loves goodness, but also that they personally need forgiveness from Jesus. Most people you meet in those worlds, it's not that they've rejected the gospel. It's that they've never met a serious Christian. Both cares about what they care about and can express what they believe. Third thing we uh, see, Jesus went around doing good. So far you may think that what I'm suggesting today is a bit weird, a bit strange. Find people who are different from you culturally in every way. Assume God's at work there. Lure yourself to find ways to share your humanity. And after you've done all of that, tell them they need forgiveness from Jesus. Feels a bit awkward. Well, thinking about the people that I know who are not Christians, but are, you know, incredibly active, that they need forgiveness from Jesus is going to be a tricky conversation. And one of the reasons I think it's going to be a tricky conversation is that if you just launch in like that, talking to them about their need to forgiveness, sounds like you're saying, I'm better than you. You know, you need forgiveness. Sorry, but you do. Like all things in the Christian life, the strangest of what's being suggested is solved by Jesus. And that's where Peter goes next. He gives a little talk about Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the proof God doesn't show favouritism. He says that in verse 34. He says, if you meet Jesus, you realise God just isn't interested in one culture. He's interested in all cultures. Again, aside, Christians sometimes are a bit confused about this and think it's more important to connect with rich people or with white people or with middle class people or people that I'm comfortable with. Peter says, I've not realised God isn't like that because of Jesus. That is not being new information. God has always been like that, but Jesus has made Peter realise. And so he says to these people interested in doing the good, doing good, Jesus is the one who will be attractive to you because he is the one in verse 38 who really did good. Jesus went around doing good stuff. Just to be clear though, he wasn't just a moral person. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew God. I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of trying to, I don't know, like advertise the church to the type of people who are really interested in social justice. Talk about the church to those people and they will like have a range of responses from laughter to getting angry. The church, the church, that haven of slave traders and homophobes and the patriarchy, the church, what does the church have to do with justice? But Jesus, he's hard to argue with. The ethics they're trying to live for They came from Jesus. And uh, their argument is not with him. So Peter, and just to be clear, Peter is not having any of, yes, yes, so Jesus is a moral teacher. He won't have any of that. He says the Holy Spirit was with Jesus. God was with him. Jesus doing good things was God breaking into the world. And people today have more reason to believe that even than Cornelius did because we've had 2,000 years of the impact of that. So he says, I don't show favouritism anymore because God's Jesus told me not to. And if you're interested in goodness, Jesus is the one who's good. Look to him. And then after he says Jesus has died and brought back to life, but he skips quite quickly. He says Jesus is the only judge of anyone. Jesus is the only judge of anybody. The person who's unarguably good, he is the only one who's going to make any judgment about you. Well, therefore, compared to him, not to me, in my opinion, compared to him, do you think you might need forgiveness, good as your justice projects are? It is a strange thing to cross barriers and to enter the world of people doing good things and make common cause with people who are culturally miles away, respecting the good they do, and also saying they need to trust in Jesus. But it makes sense because of Jesus. He's the good one. 
he will call to their hearts because they will love his goodness and enables us to say, listen, I don't make any judgment about you. That's not my job. It's him you need to reckon with. Look at him. How do you measure up? One of my favourite Christian writers uh, is a woman called Rosaria Butterfield, and she's written this book uh, a few years ago in church. Lots of us read it. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She was an LGBT college professor in America who ended up becoming a Christian through an extremely conservative traditional church. And she lived her life for many years with lots of gay friends and lots of conservative Christian friends. And I think especially in US culture, that felt like bridging two warring communities. But her view, if you read her book, is that those two communities had so much in common. She tells a story in the book of a time one of her students, one of her LGBT students, tried to kill herself. And the hospital ended up with this strange group of women gathering around to support. The lesbians and the little old church ladies. All arriving, cooking getting each other's kids from school. And when that student recovered, well, all the, all the sort of people involved in the LGBT community were busy academics living in on-campus flats. So where did the gay troubled student go to recover? The conservative pastor's house. Now, she says in the book, what inspires conservative hat-wearing homeschooling Christian ladies to sit in hospital with feminist lesbian activists holding quiches? They could have said, this student, she's one of yours. You look after her. What inspires that? Jesus inspires it. Jesus says God doesn't show favouritism. Jesus says if people are trying to do a good thing, you shouldn't think you're above helping because you're a Christian and they're not. And because their culture and relationships and politics is opposed to yours... If you're into Jesus, not some sort of culture-forming religion, then you don't do that. She talks in the book, she says, why didn't it ever blow up the traditional Bible view of marriage between men and women sitting alongside these LGBT people every day? Why didn't they feel judged? Well, but she said, because they were such Jesus people. They didn't walk into the situation to say, yeah, we're here to point to ourselves and how great we are and you should become more like us. They continually reflected and said, the only good one is Jesus. And in the meantime, while you deal with him, we'll do good with you. The only one who can judge you is him. And the only one who can offer you forgiveness is him. And this engagement with her community meant that she, this entirely secular woman, who thought she was alienated from the gospel, joined this little conservative church. Now I realise that story and this story about Cornelius end well. I do realise that while this is the call, plenty of times it doesn't work out exactly this way when we try it. I know there are people in this church really doing this, And when the subject of Jesus comes up, when you say everything, even in the least judgmental, most generous way that you can, you still get flamed and criticised and ostracised and hated. And as we've seen in Acts, there's plenty of that too. It isn't romantic. But this story is teaching us that the Holy Spirit brings people to know God this way. Christians, normal human beings... not trying to show they're super spiritual, not hiding from the world, not allowing cultural things to stop them connecting with people, but finding common ground with people who it looks like God is already working in, and then in that situation saying, listen, Jesus is a good one. Jesus offers forgiveness. And of course, praying hoping, longing for the Holy Spirit to fall on people, the way he does in Acts chapter 10. I wonder if you become alive to who the people are near you who are like this. You know, what barrier is the Holy Spirit pushing you across? Not to show how great you are 
All you have to say about yourself is, I'm just a person like you. But to say, hey, I'm human too. The only good one is Jesus. He's the judge, not me. He offers forgiveness. Well, last thing we see in the story, the passage finishes with what seems like a throwaway line. They asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Feels like just a way to move on to the rest of the story. But of course, Peter had never been in, he says, a Gentile household before, ever. What's more, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is a guard from the oppressing power that were ruining the lives of Peter's Jewish brothers and sisters. And yet, they welcomed Peter in. And he stayed a few days. I don't know whether you've ever stayed in the house of someone in another country. Even just going to like another European country and staying in the house of someone who's a different nationality, it's all a bit like, oh, when's a good time to use the bathroom? And, you know, do you have your breakfast in your pyjamas? And, you know, how should I address your children? It's strange, isn't it? We cannot imagine the discomfort included for Peter in this sentence. But the sentence is put in because the aim of all of this is not individuals sharing faith so other individuals become Christians. It's so that these culturally divided people become one church. The Holy Spirit, if he's doing one thing here, all of this is about making a church like that. If the Holy Spirit is doing this in your life, it will create relationships like that. We are nervous about that work like the early church were, and we'll hear more about that next week. I mentioned it last week, but it is so common to pick up from church and go elsewhere to find more my kind of people. And the Holy Spirit is always pushing us in the opposite direction to say, find a church full of not your kind of people. Enter crossing the barriers and you're really doing what the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. And can I say, while our church has many weaknesses, many things we get wrong, you aren't going to find a better place to experience that in a church full of many nationalities, many different stages in life. You know, the call of culture is so strong to say, why are you here with these people when I'm sure there's somewhere else you could go that you would feel happier to fit in, that your kids would have more peers who are like them, where you could be more the same. And the Holy Spirit says, come a different path with me. Cross the barriers, form one church. This church, more than many, has a chance to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in that way. So let's pray that we will. We thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for this really amazing story um, which we read so easily but what a momentous thing happened when Peter crossed that barrier and the Holy Spirit fell on people who weren't Jewish. We thank you that for the majority of us here who aren't Jewish we are included by this. What a gift to us. But we just pray you will create in us this type of holiness through the Holy Spirit. Not that hides or that clumps around shared cultural values. Not that looks for similarity to make us more comfortable. But looks for barriers to cross and then with joy crosses them because that is what your Holy Spirit is doing. So please give us the help that we need. Let's just take a few moments of quiet to reflect, pray, think about what we've heard. 
Um, yeah, we're now going to have a short Q&A reflecting on Morris's just spoke about. Um, so if anyone has any questions that they would like to ask Anna. Yes, what's your question? Um, yeah, so for anyone who didn't hear that, Anna was asking about, um, I guess, sharing about forgiveness and, um, I guess, how um, we do that and how that can seem quite unforgiving. So, Marcus, do you have Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think, and we forgiveness is not highly prized in our culture, so we like being self-righteous and telling off people having parties or whatever. In our culture. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that Peter makes no apologetic for it. He just says, he, he, his apologetic is really like good. So he's like, Jesus is the good one. And then he says, and Jesus offers you forgiveness of sins. So he, unlike I think what we usually do when we're sharing the gospel, we really try and convince people they must need forgiveness, you know, rake up the things you feel terrible about. He really puts the focus on Jesus and says, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. That's what he's offering. That's what he's about. I just wonder if there is a way in for us there. So I think, um, I think there's some misguided but well-meaning evangelistic attempts people use to basically like try and get people to admit they're bad. And then you can say, did I have got forgiveness? And Peter's just much more Jesus-centered. So he's just like, let's talk about how great Jesus is. And he died and he rose to life again. So he's the one who judges everything. And the thing he's offering is forgiveness. I wonder if that would be a more productive route. And it means you end up talking about Jesus then. Is Jesus right? Rather than like, are you a bad person who needs forgiveness? Which is not, it's not a conversation you're going to have easily. It's just a suggestion. Any back there? Yeah, Pete. So Pete's question was asking how do we deal with barriers and how do we overcome those cultural barriers? And particularly about like we choose not to eat things and that creates a barrier. I mean it's interesting, Paul later on in the New Testament basically like says this thing about to the Jews I become a Jew, to the Gentiles I become a Gentile. And what he's basically saying there is when it comes to cultural things you give up as a Christian even things you really feel matter to you that are not gospel things if it's going to help you connect with people. And I think that should be our guiding principle. And I think it really bears some reflection about what those things might be. Because I guess most people who are Christians here would sign up to that in principle. But then when I am asked to give up something that's culturally important to me, I get much more sort of cross about it. But I think basically, you know, if there was something that you didn't eat out of preference, and that was causing you to not be able to relate to some people near you who aren't Christians, I would just say, like, eat it. It's like if you've ever been on a mission trip and you go to a place in the world where they eat very different things from us, and often they treat you as the honoured guest, but they put things in front of you that you think, I really, really don't want to eat that. Any training you ever go on will say, like, you eat what is put in front of you, and... If you think you're going to be sick, pray that you won't be. <laughs> That's what we do because we are letting go of things, even things that matter to us, in order to cross barriers. So, yeah, it's a really good question, Pete, and I think we don't think about that very much. We're very like, well, other people should come to me on my terms. And then we think, hmm, why does no one who isn't a Christian already want to be interested in Christian things? Yeah, great question. Done. I just one situations for like, for example, let's say it's a work party and there's lots of alcohol involved and people are really encouraging you to, to drink a lot and like just situations where you're put in a very counter Christian cultural way, how is the best way to respond to that in a way that is um, both like 
Yeah, so Dan's question was about how do we, um, I guess when we're put in those situations that we aren't used, aren't in our comfort zone, that we aren't used to, how do we, I guess, um, deal with that? And he like said in reference like work parties and drinking and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I think I've got two reflections on that, but I think there's probably, I live in a very, <laughs> ironically for that sermon, I live in a very like, you know, this church staff Christmas party, isn't, isn't that wild? Uh, so uh, other people have more insight into this than me. I think to give two uh, particular, um, I guess, principles. So one is, I think if you read 1 Peter, I think is the book all about this, which basically says, yes, people really dislike you when you live like Jesus did in a fallen world, but the way you respond to that dislike points people to Jesus. So, and I think we do get that wrong. We tend to think, oh no, if people think Christians are really like sort of sad and don't join in with the fan, they'll hate Jesus. When in fact, it's the way you deal with not being the same really points to Jesus. He bore the sort of stress of us being sinful and we do the same for others. So I think, don't think you failed if everybody thinks you're totally weird and why won't you join in? That's part of it. And dealing with that graciously, kindly, not saying I'm never coming here again because you treated me badly. All of that is part of it. And I think the second thing is just think in advance of what you say. So if you, you know, someone sort of says to you, why are you not getting drunk with all the rest of us? And you just say, well, it's because I'm a Christian. That's a start. But you sort of put out there that being a Christian is just about trying not to do bad things as you perceive them. So is there a better answer you could give to that? I think there probably is, and it depends on how serious the questioner is. You know, after a few drinks, sometimes people do get very serious, don't they, and really want to know the truth. And so it might be worth thinking through an answer that points to grace more clearly, like basically saying, I think I've been totally forgiven for rebelling against God, and so I don't really want to keep doing that, and I think that's, that's what this would be. Or something like that. Now, appropriateness... You know, if someone's asking you beside the water cooler, a big long gospel explanation isn't appropriate. So you need to think about context. But really considering in advance how you're going to answer that, I think, is a really good idea. Thank you, Dan. Great question as well. Thank you. Any more? Can be comments as well. Yeah. Please. Yeah. I find that kind of going through Acts and a lot of New Testament stuff, a lot of the time it's either people just rejected the Christian message or they kind of turn away from everything that they've known and accept it really hard. And what I tend to find is I engage with non-Christian friends and communities, and then we just have this very neutral relationship where you tell them you're a Christian, you may have a couple of chats here and there, and like nothing happens for years and years and years and years. And it doesn't look like what I see in Acts. So like how, how do we kind of view that That's a good question. Um, yeah, so Lucy's question was about, I guess, non- navigating Christian and non-Christian friendships um, and how, I guess, that may, might remain neutral for a while and how in, we navigate that in reference to, um, yeah, acts where, I guess, there might be a bit like a large refusal or, um, yeah, how in reference to the gospel do we act with that? Mm. Yeah, so acts, it either seems to be like total acceptance or total rejection, whereas that rarely seems to happen. Good question. (laughs) Um, I'll start to try and give an answer. I mean, I think one of the things going on is that we just need to regard acts properly, so we tend to think of it as like, and the next day Peter went to Cornelius' house, and the next day he got put in prison, whereas Acts 9 and 10, a commentary I was reading this week, thinks that like Paul and then Peter and all that stuff going happened over five or six years. So it's partly that we're getting highlights, but there was a lot of normal Christian living that isn't recorded. And I think the middle response is actually there in Acts sometimes. So they get like, uh, in Acts 17, you get like, some people sneered, some people believed immediately, and some people thought, it might be worth listening to some more of this. So as the church sort of is not such a new force in the world, that does seem to happen. I think in terms of us sort of trying to move that on, um, I can only, the book that I was recommending there, The Gospel Comes to the, with the House Key, her point in that book, and I think this is really right about our culture, is that people's houses are like castles. 
And so it's not that people are really against you, it's that they never actually see Christians living out family life and priorities and praying about things and all that stuff because everybody goes home. And her great call is to say, so just open your doors and get people in to see you living the Christian life and that will provoke conversation. So I guess that's a strategy, hospitality, but it's a really good question. I don't know the answer. We probably have lots of thinking to do about it. We should... Oh, last one. Yeah. How do you deal... Uh, what's the strategy for dealing with other Christian churches mm-hmm. that have a much more um, biased and blinkered view, especially on the world as we, we live in today? Mm. Um, Rena's question was, how do we um, respond or deal with other Christian churches that might have a blinkered um, view on... I guess our like culture today. Yeah, um, that is a really hard question, and I think I do everything I possibly can to not comment on other people's churches because I sort of feel like it's none of my business. But you do sometimes get this thing in engaging with someone who isn't a Christian, where they say, "This church said this to me," or "Why did that happen to me?" Um, I basically basically think I I always try and do what Peter does and say, well, I don't think Jesus would have done that. Let's look to see what he's like. So you're sort of sidestepping, criticising another group of Christians. And I think the other thing I always, you know, in the end, if someone says, this Christian says, you know, said to me this and it's something you don't agree with, I nearly always just say, all right, that is interesting. It's probably not what I would have said because then people nearly always say, why, what would you have said? And you get a chance to actually put something that you think is is right and true. I really, really try not to get into like, yes, that group of Christians over there are terrible, because then you're just repeating the same flaw in a different way. Um, but the, it's Jesus we're promoting. And I think, you know, he will collect a group of motley characters who get a lot wrong because he's very gracious. And that sort of gives you a way of engaging with people who've had a bad church experience. I think. But usually I just sort of say, oh yeah, it's not really what I would have said. I might have said something more like this and try and keep the conversation going about, yeah, it's a really good question, Rena. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>